Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. One of the reasons I was so eager to take on the Legal Aid Caucus in Congress is because people simply don't understand what legal aid can do. And access to justice sounds very lofty, but I've really been encouraged by the fact that we now have studies that show investing in representation of people subject to eviction yields like a a one to 11 return on investment. We make government work better. We get better outcomes, but you're either sold on access to justice as a concept (laughs) or not. But if we can make a business case for it, I think that's helpful. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. On May 18th, President Biden signed a memorandum to expand access to legal representation and the courts. The memo tasks Attorney General Merrick Garland with planning how the Department of Justice will reinvigorate its access to justice function. It also reestablished the White House Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable, which raises federal agencies' awareness of how legal aid can increase employment, housing security, consumer protection, and public safety. Focused on both civil legal aid and public defenders, the plan is meant to improve the federal government's role in advancing access to justice. To learn more about what this reinvigoration means for legal aid, I'm joined by three guests. Representative Mary Gay Scanlon is the Congresswoman for Pennsylvania's 5th Congressional District and is a co-chair of the Congressional Access to Legal Aid Caucus. Karen Lash is the director of the Justice and Government Project at American University, and she was previously the executive director of the White House Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable and the deputy director of the Office for Access to Justice at the Department of Justice. And finally, Elizabeth Weiner is the Managing Attorney for Grants and Training at Legal Aid of West Virginia. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Karen, I wanted to start with you. As I said in the intro, the memo is meant to reinvigorate civil legal aid uh, from the federal level. And I'd like to get some more context on this. What specifically does this memo want to see accomplished? Well, we should start with the, the title of the presidential memo, which is the Memorandum on Restoring the Department of Justice's Access to Justice Function and Reinvigorating the White House Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable. So in the title, we see it does two things that are distinct, but they're also interconnected. So first, it tells the Attorney General, um, expand the Justice Department's planning, development, and coordination of access to justice policy initiatives, including, as you pointed out, criminal indigent defense, civil legal aid, and pro bono legal services. And it asks the Attorney General to prepare a report to the President describing the Department's plan to expand its ATJ function and do that within 120 days. The second thing it does is it relaunches the Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable as a White House initiative. And it's it's building on the 2015 presidential memo that created LAIR as a White House initiative. It's intended to improve coordination among federal programs to make them more effective by including legal services alongside other supportive services when that can improve results in government programs, Um, develop policy recommendations to improve ATJ, advance research, advance best practices, and to assist the United States with implementation of goal 16 of the United Nations 2030 
agenda for sustainable development. Goal 16 is the one that has to do with access to justice. But really importantly, if it's okay to add, Attorney General Garland, he posted his own very powerful statement in response to the presidential memo, making it absolutely clear that he shares President Biden's views about addressing significant barriers uh, to low-income communities and communities of color, and that he's deeply concerned about the you know, public's fractured faith in the rule of law and doubt about whether the government really seeks equal justice for all. So he has his own direction to his own leadership to consult with the heads of all the components and stakeholders to come up with a plan for restoring and expanding the Justice Department's role in leading access to justice policy across the government. That's an interesting issue there as we do this table setting. Uh, Representative Scanlon, I'm curious, you know, we've seen now we're in the third administration where this has gone back and forth. The Obama administration uh, started a lot of what Karen is talking about. The Trump administration either shuttered or made dormant uh, some of this organization. Why is it important that the White House and members of Congress at the federal level get involved with uh, what is primarily seen usually as a, a state level or local level legal aid um, uh, projects? Well, it's important um, from a leadership perspective, obviously, and, and you mentioned that uh, the former administration, the intervening administration, um, shuttered these agencies. That administration also sought to defund the Legal Services Corporation, you know, put no money in the budgets for it. So um, clearly there is a stark worldview difference or a stark difference in worldviews in terms of what people think is important. Um, I spent 35 years before coming to Congress working at the intersection of the pro bono world and on a number of boards of legal services agencies. And you see there the difference that having access to an attorney can make, sometimes even just having access to the attorney, not even having the attorney do anything specific, really just makes a huge difference in the, the outcomes that people see. And um, I think Karen has really strongly articulated in some of her writings the reasons why it's so important to have the federal government invested in this, because we, Congress and the executive set up programs in order to address the issues that affect, you know, the folks who are most in need, and then they can't get access to them. So um, just having um, legal resources, you know, if we, if we have an eviction moratorium, well, it doesn't help people if they don't know about it and they don't know how to plead it or access it or otherwise deal with it. Or, you know, having um, health services available. Well, if you can't figure out if you're entitled to them or whatever, um, it's not going to do you any good. So there's a huge value add from having legal aid, legal services available to help people get access to what it is the government says they should have access to. And, and so then how does that translate, Elizabeth? The representative has laid out why the federal government should be involved, but then what does that mean for an organization like yours in West Virginia working on the state level? The efficacy and the vital importance of a conduit like Layer is to give the state level folks involved in legal services programs the tools to connect with these funding sources that are supportive of the national priorities that Congresswoman Scanlon uh, laid out. 
through the Lair's involvement with Legal Aid of West Virginia, we're a statewide legal services program. We're situated in a very poor state. We have had tumultuous politics at times. Through the um, ability to identify important federal funding sources and to be able to tap into toolkits and other supports that allow us to actually apply for and obtain those funding sources, um, we're, we're able to support vulnerable clients. This past year, I took a quick look and uh, directly stemming from grants that Karen Lash and Lair uh, allowed Legal Aid of West Virginia to successfully pursue. Uh, we have over a million dollars in funds that are supporting 16 staff members. Uh, that's 14 attorneys and three paralegals. And on the ground, they've handled over the, the brief time since we've gotten the technical assistance from Lair literally thousands of cases, and those are in areas like domestic violence, sexual assault, financial exploitation of elders, and helping families who are dealing with unexpectedly raising children in the fallout of the opioid epidemic. It's interesting, you know, you're talking about what the, the benefit has been to, to you in West Virginia. You have 16 staff, lawyers, and, and paralegals. And that brings me to one of the things that jumped out at me when I read the memo for the first time last week uh, was that there was this line, and I'm curious to, to people's thoughts, and um, Representative Scanlon, I'll, I'll start with you. So there was this sentence that said, the Attorney General shall consider expanding DOJ's planning, development, and coordination of access to justice policy initiatives, including in the areas of criminal indigent defense, civil legal aid, and pro bono legal services. And what jumped out to me is that this is a very lawyer-centric view of the solution to the access to justice problem. And I'm curious, Representative Scanlon, is this too restricting in regards to how we should be thinking about access to justice? Or uh, you know, is the path forward more lawyers and paralegals? Well, I think both are necessary. Um, and we're seeing some really interesting things happening um, I think Utah is doing a lot of work in this area of using folks who are not lawyers, um, paralegals, but or or various types of professionals, but who are well trained in a particular arena, um, and able then to assist folks to file the necessary paperwork or gather the proper documents. Um, you know, and, and we've been trying to promote that in some of the legislation coming through. We've been talking with um, some legal services folks in Philadelphia about. Um, having navigators in the social security system who can help people navigate a system that is supposed to be able to be worked by the individuals applying for um, relief. But as we know, um, people get, you know, thrown out of the system more frequently than not often and have to appeal and jump through all kinds of hoops in order to get the benefits they should have gotten in the first place. So I think there's a whole range of things we can do. Um, they mentioned criminal justice, they mentioned legal aid, they mentioned pro bono assistance. Um, I think one of the things that the order points to is the fact that we have a very patchwork system in our country right now. And every study for as long as I've been involved has said that between you know 80 and 90% of people who need legal assistance when they have a civil legal aid matter, they can't get it because there just isn't, there aren't people available to do it. So. Clearly, we need to do a better job and 
There are tools out there. There's best practices. It's a federal system. People are trying a lot of different things. But um, groups like the Office of Access to Justice and, and the Legal Aid Roundtable can help identify best practices, identify funding opportunities, and really um, help expand access in that way. And then I guess to ask uh, the similar question then to, to you, Elizabeth, how do you think we should be, as you know, the Attorney General has got 90 days to, to <laughs> think about what this plan is going to be. I, in an ideal world, what does that definition of access to justice look like? Is it access to an attorney, access to a court, access to a remedy, regardless of uh, who is the, the intermediary? As the Congresswoman stated, I think it is across those areas. And one of the things that I think has been a hallmark of the, the federal funding that the Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable has supported connecting local legal services with, those federal grants have an emphasis upon working across organizations. They don't just fund legal services. We're just a, a piece of that safety net. And so, for example, the same federal funds that support our VOCA grant that works on domestic violence and sexual assault also supports advocates in shelters. It supports law enforcement. It supports counselors. There's a whole range of other professionals that are supported by those same funds and by virtue of all being um, awarded those funds in West Virginia in a geographic locality, there's a strong expectation of communication, of cooperation, of working together and deploying those best practices in order to address whatever the individual's crisis is, whether it be having experienced domestic violence or whether it be a grandparent who is unexpectedly raising a child because both parents have overdosed and are no longer there to raise the child, or they're both in jail or, or someplace that we are able to, to locate them. So there's a strong emphasis on collaboration that is part of the funding, and that has also driven, I think, more collaborative and cooperative work on the, the ground in order to be able to really help people meaningfully access good outcomes. I want to dig in just briefly, and Karen, you led LAIR during the Obama administration, and this is the Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable. And I'm curious, um, from that experience, uh, obviously you're an advocate for, for the roundtable, uh, what themes or challenges are best tackled by this type of interagency cooperation? It probably makes sense to start with the animating purpose of LAIR. The way I like to talk about it is that there was this big idea that there's a wide array of government programs that are aimed at increasing opportunities for education and employment and housing and healthcare and improving public safety and family stability, and that they're going to be more effective, be more efficient, they'll be more fair. You know, bottom line, we'll get better outcomes for the people the programs aim to help when they include legal services alongside other supportive services the programs and policies already providing. And Elizabeth and Legal Aid of West Virginia are particularly adept at recognizing that all this work is done 
with other social service partners, right? So it isn't really, it's not so much that it's an access to justice message and imperative as it is a let's make government work the best it possibly can. You know, so we worked with all, we had 22 participating agencies and we worked together to take a, a inventory and identify what are the programs and policies that don't include legal services, but they could, meaning they have authority within the executive branch, thanks to Congressman Scanlon, um, and that they should include legal services because the research says it's gonna get us better results. So that's really this defining feature. It's good, fair, effective government. And what the executive branch can uniquely do without engaging that messier legislative branch that Congressman Scanlon <laughs> is so adept at working. So that's, that's, that's really the context for, for the layer activity. If I can just layer onto that, I mean, one of the things that I think that having the executive involved in can really amplify one of the reasons I was so eager to take on the um, Legal Aid Caucus in Congress is because people simply don't understand what legal aid can do. And access to justice sounds very lofty, but I've really been encouraged by the fact that we now have studies that show, you know, investing in representation of people subject to eviction yields like a, a one to 11 return on investment, because if people stay in their homes, they can keep their jobs, their kids can stay in school, you know, there are health implications, et cetera. So, you know, this kind of layers into what, what Karen was talking about, that we make government work better, we, we get better outcomes but you're either sold on access to justice as a concept or not. But if we can make a business case for it, I think that's helpful. Let me pull on something you said there, Representative. Um, you said mm -hmm. uh, most people don't know what legal aid is. Um, and, and what I'm curious about is both Lair and then previously under the Obama administration, the Office of Access to Justice were, were very internally facing. It was very choir facing. It was either mm -hmm. among federal agencies, as Karen just explained, or um, it was with offices like Elizabeth's in West Virginia. It didn't have much of a public facing mm -hmm. educational campaign. What role, if at any, should these groups, uh, as uh, Attorney General Garland is thinking about this, uh, have in regards to educating not only the population at large, but also the, the legal community that isn't tuned into these issues? Well, I, I think there is a big role. I mean, obviously, there was a, more than enough work to do in terms of coordinating legal services across various agencies, et cetera. And I think there were eight people in the office. So, you know, plenty of work to go around. But, um, you know, I was shocked when I came to Congress and talked to a couple other lawyers in Congress and said, you know, I'm really interested in this issue. And they said, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. We always vote for, you know, funding legal services like, yeah, well, then do you know that they're being funded at a level of like 1970? Um, and, and I think the, um, the uh, statistic that Jim Sandman from LSE would always use is that we spend more on Halloween costumes for our pets than we do on legal services in this country. And folks just don't realize that. They're very confused about whether legal aid, civil legal aid is actually representing people in the criminal justice system. So I, I think there are opportunities for education. Um, 
you know, assuming there's bandwidth, but I'm happy to stand on a soapbox and talk about it too. Well, the, um, the, the memo itself talked about uh, so explicitly bringing back Lair, kind of, I think the other uh, elephant in the room or elephant in the memo, as it were, is the Office of Access to Justice, which is not explicitly brought back by request in the memo. So uh, Karen, I just wanted to ask you first, do we have any sense uh, at this point in time, if the Office of Access to Justice will be brought back on account of this memo? The presidential memorandum, as you rightly say, it refers to restoring access to justice activities or functions, I forget the actual language, um, but it leaves appropriately to the Justice Department to actually fill that in and define how the agency um, will, uh, you know, will implement um, that directive. So. Attorney General Garland's memo does reference the Office for Access to Justice, um, and it does uh, reference the, um, the reg. I should have the number memorized, but the office was established in 2016, and it's in the CFR, um, and Attorney General, Attorney General Garland does reference uh, that CFR section, and which is what created the office. So I'm optimistic that uh, the internal process, you know, if passed as prologue, and you know that there will be some sort of office, exactly the its reach, its parameters, who it reports to. Those are all the kinds of things I imagine. There's a lot of discussion internally um, to resolve. With that optimism that Karen is talking about, that the office would come back, Representative Scanlon, last uh, Congress, you put forward a bill in the House that would have legislatively created the Office of Access to Justice at the DOJ, uh, and that uh, bill did not become law last cycle. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, practically speaking, what's the difference here? If the office does come back through this work uh, that Merrick Garland is going to be doing, um, does, where does that leave you in wanting to create a legislative uh, version of the office? Well, it's like so many things that we've seen in the recent um, back and forth with administrations is that you're just trying to ensure sustainability, continuity. Um, make it more difficult for a subsequent administration to upend the good work that was being done. Um, so, so it's really just to, to try to embed it in the process and in the government. And do you anticipate bringing back that bill? Absolutely. And, and you mentioned that it didn't pass. It was certainly in, or it passed the House, but got stuck in the Senate. It was in the company of hundreds of bills that didn't get considered by the Senate. So you know, we're hopeful that uh, we'll see a little more activity over there this time around. And one thing I'm curious about is the, the previous iteration of the office didn't have grant making power or law enforcement uh, power, even though it, it was in the Department of Justice. Uh, should either of these powers in a reconstituted office be considered? Certainly making, uh, an, you know, ATJ 2.0 even more robust would be a plus. Those things, uh, you know, would require a significant increase in staffing. You know, I'm not sure what's being anticipated. And as Jason, you rightly point out, those are two key tools that the government has to make people do what you want and make some change and do things differently. But it, you know, we we discovered that there were lots of other tools in the federal government. <laughs> 
we spent some time figuring out what those were and discovering there's really a lot that can be done even without those tools. And of course, really almost all of the ATJ work was done in partnership with other offices within the department and in other agencies. And that included grant making and law enforcement, uh, offices that had law enforcement authorities. So we were able to be plenty nimble even without it. But I'm sure that whoever staffs the ATJ 2.0 would welcome any additional tools in that powerful toolbox. One of the things that I noticed from the work previously done by the office is that it, um, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but did not focus much on the role of technology in access to justice reform, uh, which of, of course is where my bias comes from. And so I wanted to get a sense, Elizabeth, from you. Um, there always seems to be this disconnect in access to justice technology between the people creating the technology and the people that need the technology. Let's assume a reconstituted access to justice office. Would a focus on technology and data be beneficial to the type of work you're doing in West Virginia? Or do you think that the health needs to look like the, uh, the original office, which focused on kind of more traditional policy and, and legal support for uh, agencies like yours? I mean, I think one of the things that the Access to Justice Office and Lair were able to do was to lift up examples of things that were happening out around the country and to also provide technical assistance on resources. One thing that we're doing that the Access to Justice kind of planted a seed for, we have a, a project right now with a fellow who is in a federally qualified health center doing a medical legal partnership with folks who are in recovery. The idea came from the access to justice work that, that uh, Karen was doing and that Lair was doing. She was able to connect us with other folks who were doing that kind of work around the country. And I, I, I think that there could also be those same bridges and connections to look at where projects that have been supported and have gotten technical expertise through the access to justice office some of those are going to, to be technology focused. We're, we're developing some tools for our kinship caregiver program right now that are an online tool to help people decide whether adoption or guardianship is the right choice given their family's totality of circumstances. We would love to share that as a beneficiary of the access to justice information and, and support that we got around pursuing a partnership and pursuing some uh, HHS SAMHSA funding that we're going after to the extent that we're working on developing tech tools within these projects. Uh, I think that that would be absolutely something that the office could lift up and share. I would just add to concede, Jason, that I don't think technology was, uh, you know, got its due in the first iteration of the office or, or Lair, but I can't imagine that that won't be really different in a 2.0 mm. version, that there is 
the pandemic created a kind of awareness that it's not optional <laughs> to use technology in order to deliver services in a variety of ways that aren't in person. And in fact, federal agency, many federal agencies responded heroically and quickly by getting guidance out saying, you know, where they had the authority to be more flexible about using their funds to support, you know, a whole range of uh, technology needs and to get that out. I mean, there, there were local organizations and local governments buying loaner hotspots and cell phones for people and courts finally making e-filing happen and self-help centers becoming available remotely and all with federal funds, thanks to um, some really amazing guidance. So lots of new online tools mm -hmm. coming on with federal funds. And one of the additions to um, the LAIR agencies is the U.S. Digital Service that I confess I don't know very much about. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that, I got really excited. Like they will be especially well positioned to inform other agencies about ways to improve. But also I think the agencies are going to have very rich experience on their own about how they turned on the technology switch when it was needed most. Just, I mean, the technology is great and the advancements we've seen, you know, that we got shoved into through the pandemic are amazing. But as Elizabeth mentioned, one of the strategies is to go to a federally qualified health center and embed legal services there because people usually have to actually come to the health center. You know, we've seen things where sending out med students with iPads to help deliver health care. Well, so maybe we need law students with iPads to, to help deliver because um, in my district, you know, we don't have rural broadband issues, but we do have issues with the fact that people do not have access to the internet in their homes other than possibly on their phones. And it may be as much as 25% of, of our region um, because people just can't afford it. So the issue of, of reaching people without technology will not go away. Um, we can't solve everything with it given, given the wealth disparities that we have to contend with, and particularly with the folks we're trying to serve with legal services. Just another way that access to justice doesn't mean access to an attorney. There's other right? things that we need to make sure access helps. Well, there, there's a lot on the horizon for both Lair and uh, potentially this office, which may be coming back. But uh, Representative Scanlon, I wanted to uh, end with a question to you taking a step back, because in the last four years, we've seen, and the reason why we're having this conversation today is that as we switched administrations, we've seen this office both open, close, and now potentially reopen again. We've seen Lair go dormant, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, the last administration tried to zero out funding for the Legal Services Corporation. Um, and what I'm curious about, and, and I want to ask you specifically, because you co-chair, you're, you're a Democrat, you co-chair the Congressional Access to Legal Aid Caucus with your fellow Pennsylvanian representative, Fitzpatrick, who's a Republican. And so we can't be terminally cynical that there isn't a bipartisan approval of legal aid issues. But I'm curious to how you think about this. Like, how can we get to a point where access to justice isn't treated as a partisan football that gets tossed around as soon as an administration changes in Washington? Well, and, and that was one of the reasons I was interested in, in working on the bipartisan caucus. It's always been a bipartisan caucus. Um, before Representative Fitzpatrick and myself, it was um, Representative Kennedy from Massachusetts and Susan Brooks from Indiana. Um, 
So I think there is common ground to be had here. And, and um, as I said before, making the business case for why it's so important that we have access to legal aid, because every one of my 435 colleagues in Congress has people in their district who can benefit from legal aid. You know, their neediest constituents um, can benefit from legal aid. So um, we're trying to draw tighter um, relationships between our legal services agencies. We've, we're starting a, um, an effort to kind of cross train our constituent service people with legal aid folks so they know what's available um, and, and can work with each other to get better results. Because I'm finding as someone who used to work in the legal aid side of it or the legal services side of it, it's the same people who are calling for constituent services. So trying to make those connections and help people understand this broader concept that, yes, we can help people get access to the benefits that government is providing and make the whole system work better and more efficiently. So happy to appeal to the bottom line dollar as well as fundamental fairness. Since I left the Justice Department, for the past four years, I've been working in red, blue, and purple states, really making a similar case for layer-like activity at the state level. And just like Congresswoman uh, Scanlon says, we can find that common mm -hmm. ground uh, and, a sh and even shared values and uh, shared goals, you know, on things like we want to help people get a job. So that often means you need legal help to remove obstacles to employment, you know, whether it's getting a record expunged or a driver's license reinstated. And there are studies that show employment goes up and recidivism goes down when that when you get that help, or that health improves and healthcare costs go down when mm -hmm. people get legal help to address those health harming civil justice problems. So there are a number of issues where we really can work together. And right now, I think probably more than ever, we need to be finding more of those shared values and shared goals uh, across our, our 50 states in Washington, DC. Uh, and I think that's a great note to end on. With that, I'd like to thank Representative Scanlon, Karen Lash, and Elizabeth Wainer for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed today, check out our show notes. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.